Hey everybody, my name is Ben McDonald and welcome to episode one of the Deep Dive podcast. This is a podcast that engages in theological conversations. We're going to be taking a look at doctrines within the church, some of the figures who helped form them, looking at church history and the ideas behind it. But the point of this podcast is that it's a conversation. We don't want to be so much lecturing at you as we are inviting you into a space to come and hang out and to ask questions and play around with some ideas. Now, we had hoped to release this podcast at the very beginning of the year, but between people getting COVID and COVID restrictions shutting us down and even sometimes the weather outside just barring us from even getting inside the building, we've been unable to record as much as we'd like to. So we are still hoping that we are going to be releasing a podcast once every week, but the format might change from time to time. Sometimes it's going to be Colin and I, sometimes it might be just me on my own, and other times we're going to have special guests. Now, we've already pre-recorded a couple of episodes, so in episode one, you might hear us talking about getting ready for Christmas. You're not crazy. You haven't gone back in time. That's just because we've pre-recorded these shows. The last thing that I wanted to mention is that this podcast is brought to you by Deep Water Church in Nova Scotia, Canada, hence the title, The Deep Dive. And so in episode one, we are going to be talking about the idea of reconciliation coming out of a sermon series we did right before Christmas called reconciled. We're going to be taking a look at some of the figures of the church and what they had to say about the idea of reconciliation, specifically when it comes to the idea of atonement. Thank you for tuning in and we hope you enjoy episode one of The Deep Dive. God isn't one way before the death of Jesus and then another way after. Mm. In other words, God doesn't love you because Jesus died. Jesus died because God loves you. Hey, it's the Deep Dive, the uh, everyone's favorite theology podcast. Absolutely. I know it's mine. Theology conversations for a post-Christian age. Yes. And, Boom. Um, yeah, I, I forgot our tag. Is line. that kind of the tag? That is the tag. Yeah. We're going to run like, with that until it goes. It is good. I like yeah, it. No, I, I like, like it as a tagline. How are you doing, Ben? I'm doing excellent, Colin. I, I'm Colin, yeah. So yeah, I this is Colin. I'm myself. Ben. Yeah. So um, anything interesting and exciting from the weekend that you want to relay? It's Christmas time. Yeah. Are you feeling Christmassy yet? I, I, uh, no. It, it really hit me, actually, because I showed up for the, for, I showed up for a Thursday night service and all of a sudden people were singing Christmas songs and I was like, oh yeah, that's a thing that's happening right now. <laughs> yes, it is. But that's how Christmas works every year to me. Just yeah. kind of, it just sort of, it creeps up. up on you. It creeps up. But it's always a good thing. Is there, um, for you, is there like something that gets you in the Christmas spirit? Like gets you right into the Christmas music? Mode? Yeah. What yeah, music specifically? Christmas music. I love Chris me. Tomlin's Christmas stuff. Okay. Um, I know that may be generic and not too cool and hip, but I just think he does a great I'll job. I'll be of, honest. Maybe this yeah. is total, like, not okay as a yeah. as a Christian on staff at a All church. Right. But Bring it up. I, I don't know it. I don't, don't even know, know the Chris album. Stuff? Oh. I know Chris Tomlin. Okay. I just don't know the... So I don't know the Christmas. Check Jeff it out. That's I think it's funny. called Glory in the Highest. Or you can, I think there's even a podcast, or not podcast, excuse me. I don't promise on, that on I'm going to do this, but I might check it out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, he just does a good job. Good, good job. I'm a dirty, Christmas I'm a heathen. I, I'm not, you but I, but I listen to, I listen music to secular heathen. music. Yeah. You know what music gets me into the Christmas spirit is uh, the Chieftains. The Chieftains. I'm not familiar. They're a bunch of old guys. Look it up. Bunch okay. of old dudes. Although they brought in, like, so they have a Christmas album called The Bells of Dublin. Mm. And it's all, I don't even know. 
some people hate this music, but they they have <laughs> actually there's one song on that album with Jackson Brown called "The Rebel Jesus." Oh, and that gets me in the Christmas spirit every time. So that's mm. my Christmas. That, that's why they killed Jesus. That's why they, <laughs> we've been. Uh, I don't know if anyone's seen. You know what? We don't even know when necessarily this podcast is going to be released. So maybe we're going to be way past Christmas, we and people are going to be like, "Hey, what's going on?" Yeah. But another relevant thing that you just raised there that we everybody was roasting a, a Stephen Furtick clip from Elevation yes. Church for comparing the death of Jesus to Old Town Road <laughs> by Lil Nas X. That's why Jesus died. That's why. Well, That's well why actually, this is a good segue maybe into killed. what we want to kind of talk about today, yes. though, isn't it? Killing and death and all those good things. No, well, yeah. not quite, but we're wanting to talk about uh, reconciliation. That was a uh, sermon series that just wrapped up a week ago uh, here at Deepwater Church. It was fantastic. Um, I have to say, like... I've never been to a church that has had a sermon series like that before. Yeah. Like, I just think that's brilliant. And I didn't even have to push for it. Like I used to be the guy in the churches I've been a part, uh, been a part of in the past. Mm-hmm. I was the guy who was like pushing uh, issues of, you know, general interest, like to social issues and such. Well, I, I was that guy and I would always have to push I've never had to do you push know here. It's it's already happening. It's, it's true. Fantastic. You know what I noticed about it because I I do think it's really cool. I think it's awesome that we did it. But um, you know, so we're doing a we're this podcast is going to be talking about reconciliation more, maybe from the theological s- standpoint, right? Or going a little deeper. The sermon series was obviously theologically minded, but it is true. It was very. We've been talking a lot about you know the indigenous schools issue going yeah. on and and reconciliation with that racial reconciliation, and I do have to say I think it. It's it's often neglected by a lot of churches, I think, because it strikes a nerve with a lot of people mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, it it sometimes we're so allergic, I think, to the political baggage of all these terms that we kind of eschew them completely and get rid of it all when yeah. it's actually still our responsibility to talk about it in a Christocentric, you know, gospel way. Yeah. And so... Um, yeah, I was quite. I was quite happy with our. Uh, yeah, any th- any personal sort of, I don't know, anecdotes or responses to that that you've had besides just. I think we. I think most of us in the church enjoyed it. It was a great sermon series. But what what does I, it mean to you? I mean, I think personally, you know, one of the reasons why when we're talking about reconciliation in the church, one of the reasons why I find probably it doesn't get brought up is because we don't see it as a thing confronting us. Mm. It's not a challenge for a lot of churches because we're so homogeneous. Yes. Right. Um, in one of the sermons, we, we used a quote, uh, I think Matthew used a quote in one of his sermons where he said, you know, until our Friday and Saturday nights look like, or what was it? Until, yep. until this, you know, yeah, multi-ethnic. Friday and Saturday night look the same as our Sunday morning. Yeah. We're or, not going to be truly multi-ethnic. Yeah. Or something along those lines. Probably, we're that. probably butchering that quote <laughs> right now and that's totally Matthew, fine. Forgive us. But the idea, <laughs> the idea is a lot of our Sunday mornings, we're not confronted with the idea of reconciliation. Mm. And so uh, to actually challenge us to go like, no, we have a multi-ethnic church here. This is something we do need to talk about. And, uh, and you know, um, it, 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 I, I would say what it left an impression on me in the sense that it's like, huh, these are questions I don't, I don't attack from this angle very often. So it's yeah. challenging in that way, for yeah. sure. For, for me, I, I have a, a unique perspective on that level. Uh, I, am obvious, I am, to those of you who are watching, uh, a person of color. I, I've even got my Black Lives Matter sweater on for the occasion today. Oh, there you go. Um, but I, you know, I, I lived into a unique family situation. I wasn't really in tune with my own coloredness for a long time. Um, I, 
I had an interesting memory come to me through the series. I had a girl when I was in my early, mid-20s, something like that. I had a girl I was dating break up with me because... Really? She, because her family would not accept me because I was not white. You see, these are the stories that people, I, you know, I end up hearing this and it, I, I absolutely go like, well, of course that sort of stuff has happened, but it's so hard for me to believe. Yes. It was hard and for so me to believe And so it shows a sort of blind spot for sure. Yeah. I do and, feel like there's this kind of an opportunity. I know this is not necessarily where we planned on going, but like, how do you feel about, you know, there's a lot of controversy around things like Black Lives Matter. These are political things yeah. uh, that get then brought into the church. And I think some people go like, you don't want to support that kind of movement because it's it's not, it's a secular movement, for instance, yeah. and it deters us from the gospel. Like, you, you don't, you wouldn't agree, obviously. I would not agree. I, and I think we would probably need to save a lot of that for another podcast, but... Just in short, I would say, I think a lot of that just has to do with... Just spicing things up. Just spicing yeah. it up early on. I just, you know... <laughs> I think a lot of that has to do with partisanship, not, yeah. not uh, gospel or evangelical. True evangelical you know, thought would not throw out the idea of the Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, John Wesley, I think, was an ardent uh, abolitionist and stuff. Um, I don't think uh, it has to do with uh, a theological... Mm-hmm. Truth. I think it has to do with partisanship, and I think there's a lot it, of Christians. It, what has it? What has to do with partisanship? The like the political the rejection of the rejection Black of Lives okay, Matter, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. You know, being a part of a church that would think that you know having a sermon series about you know reconciliation between the different, not races, because the whole idea of racism, and I, I like how how um, uh, AJ said that right at the beginning. Yeah, the whole idea of different races of human beings is is a fallacy. But anyway, but no that, that whole yeah. idea uh, and, and the resistance some Christians would have to, the, to this sort of conversation uh, is, is, I think, them being more allied with a certain political philosophy, like a conservative Republican in the United States, philosophy of things that, that will accept and, and advocate for some social issues and not others, mm-hmm. will, we'll, you know overplay some and underplay others. And I think there's a lot of, of our brothers and sisters in the States, God bless them, who allow their theology to be shaped by what does, uh, what, what do political conservatives think? So then to the, because this would be the argument though, is that by, we definitely, we should do this on another we podcast. I know because I'm springing it on you now, <laughs> but that by you, you know, wearing a sweater that says Black Lives Matter, you are saying I'm not actually supporting a some bipartisan political motion. This is just a gospel thing that I'm for. It's and just it, a truth. It's like, just a truth. You right. can't read the the scriptures and even, say even though, Black Lives don't matter. Even though some people would say that there's so much ideology mixed into the movement that is Black Lives Matter. See, like I because I can recognize that. I agree with you on this. I think, but I I think you know, given where we are on this conversation, but. Yeah. Um, but I do get that, you know, these things get often co-opted and led and they're not. See, like I, I often think that, um, you know, as a Christian who sees any sort of foundationalism um, in scripture and in tradition, uh, that any movement that is not fundamentally geared by that, first of all, I can't go along with. Yes. So... 
to the extent that that is what's happening, I'm I'm for it. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? But yeah. it's hard for me to give myself just to this like, you know, like when people, if somebody were asked me like, are you for Black Lives Matter? It's like that's a difficult question actually. To me, it is. Yes. You know, the statement. Of course, I'm for. Uh, but you know, anyway, that's all, that is a whole yeah, thing. And, and but you it, could dig dig down into that. But I think that's true of many things. Mm-hmm. I mean, even for someone just to say that they're a Republican or a what is the other thing? Democrat in the states, or <laughs> yeah. a liberal or a <laughs> conservative? Here, I did have Repo- to we are in Canada, you know, so that's okay. That's right. So, like, I mean, to ally yourself with one of those, yeah. I think to some degree it would also need qualification. To what degree can a can a Christian truly say? They're a liberal, a liberal or an NDP. Right, right, exactly. Like, yeah. Because those those parties, no matter what people say, none of them completely ascribe to everything that the gospel would say. Yeah, of course. You know, which I is think, why and it becomes very problematic then when people try and debate about whether Jesus absolutely. was like a socialist or not. And you're like, right. well, aspects would come on, guys. look like it. <laughs> Although that, that that word didn't even yeah, exist I mean, and again, back it's the, in Jesus. Well, here's what we're kind of getting into now, I think, and maybe we can we move now into what we want to talk about, which is reconciliation theologically. Um, but it's you know when you talk about a term, when you're talking about Jesus, first of all, you're talking about a something very complex as a, he as a historical person, as the second person of the Trinity, as the you know to to make it seem like I can understand all that is you know without without that being the life I live, as opposed to just data that I have in my mind, right? Mm -hmm. And in the same way, though, then we try and reduce it to terms like socialism, as though that can be reduced to one movement or something. You know, these are all incredibly expansive issues that demand precision and and careful readings. And I think people are so hyper-binary when it comes to these things. They want to put it in black and white terms, and it becomes problematic very quickly. Um, and so actually, I'm, I, let me just lead in then to what, you know, one of the things we've been talking about reconciliation sort of cross-culturally in the sermon series, and now we want to do a bit more of the deep dive on the actual difficulty of figuring it out theologically. And I think that this is hugely important for Christians because even though theology often seems like it's up here mm. and it's all this abstract kind of thinking, we go like, where does the rubber hit the road? It's actually really what we think about those yes. theologies. So what do we, when we talk about reconciliation as sort of the, the primary theme of the Bible, that reconciliation begins between God and man, that, right? Absolutely. God and humanity. Not, it's by extension that then it leads to reconciliation between each other. But yeah. if we don't first understand the relationship theologically, which might come with these, you know, strange terms and it might sound like it's difficult and academic at times right and and therefore it people feel like it's not of use to them uh it is incredibly useful it's it's uh it's what we are it, what we need to do in order to sort of conceptualize the rest yes. right that's what theology should be hugely influential on how we actually live you know and, and i think if if there's been some criticism towards theology that it is impractical i think that is because perhaps that was bad theology do you know what i mean yeah like uh, I right true uh, good theology informs our walk with christ so it, that if 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 actually if it played out in a cultural context poorly it's mm. because the theology behind it was also skewed yeah i would yeah. say yeah i think that's probably you know that's a pretty i have to think about that for a second but i mean that is definitely a good 
it makes sense to look at it that way. Right. Certainly. Like when I, when or I was, it just wasn't applied. Maybe the theology just wasn't applied properly yeah. or with enough precision. Like we're talking about, again, the whole thing of, of wood in other churches. I think most churches I grew up in and around would probably have not have done a, a sermon series like we just finished recon, uh, mm-hmm. Reconciled. And, um, and I think one of the reasons for that was uh, a bad theology that you know, what, what the church is about is evangelism. We, our, our focus is spiritual, not physical or, or political or, mm-hmm. or social, which is a certain theological point of view, right? right? Um, a bad one, I would say. Yeah, I would um, disagree. Yeah. But, but so, so therefore, because of that's how they thought, they, yeah. I think that my, my theology is not about what's going on in the world, Therefore, I don't get involved in the world, and that's exactly how a lot of churches acted, I think, for many years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think so. So, so now, we're, 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 as you said, we're, we're wanting to, to take this to a theological level, this idea of, of reconciliation, um, and I think the, you know, A.J. Matthew um, did a great job of making this a, a, a holistic... Yeah, actually, and I, and I do want to say that I don't want to give the impression that like what we did in the sermon series wasn't theological, and now Absolutely. we're doing that. Um, right. I, I believe everything in the sermon series was from a place that was theologically grounded, that it was yes. trying to Absolutely. be uh, expository of scripture and and kind of use it on the basis of that. But we didn't get really into a lot of the the again the deeper theological context that you might study when looking at these things right that's right so so yeah so when we're talking about reconciliation between god and humanity theologically what sort of words what sort of terms are usually most often used, Ben, what yeah, would you say? Yeah, so uh, t- typically when we're talking about, I mean, you could see reconciliation, obviously, as sort of the, the spanning theme that runs from Genesis to Revelation, mm. right? That you have the fall of humanity, and then the coming together again, that, that riff between God and his creation coming back together. And typically the word that we end up using when we talk about this, which finds its apex at the cross, Christ is the word atonement. Mm. And this is a term, I think, when people think of atonement, they think often of theories. They think of uh, sort of like several different models and ways of understanding that. And people get into a lot of debates about, you know, which one is the best. What I find interesting at the get-go, you know, when we use the word atonement, we were talking about this before the podcast, but the word is an invention of, of uh, William Tyndale, yeah. uh, right? Which, uh, you know, translator of the Bible, English translator of the Bible uh, around the Reformation period. Uh, the word describes literally at one mint, right? Yes. So this coming together. So it is another word for to reconcile. Mm. Um, but it has gone through various sort of interpretations and changes throughout church history. And one of the things is that one of the things I want to say up front is that the atonement sometimes gets pinned solely on the cross of Christ yes. and doesn't become encapsulating of the entire life of Christ, also including the the resurrected Christ and the ascension. Mm. These are all components to yes. understanding actually what atonement is and the and the ongoing work of reconciliation. Yes. I would like say. for example, our Orthodox brothers and sisters, and, and indeed a lot of the early church fathers 
but emphasize the atoning aspect of Christmas. It's Christmas time uh, here as we're recording this. We're almost getting to be there. Yes. And and so Jesus just coming as a baby in the flesh. Yeah, exactly. Uh, in is, itself, is, 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 there's an atoning element of that. You know what I thought was really interesting, and, and I, it, I was just thinking about this, and so this is not me doing any deep deep study on this. Okay, okay. but it came <laughs> up in the sermon, but it was about when the wise men bring... Uh, uh, the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Mm-hmm. And when you recognize what those are, what those gifts are, there's a very, it's a, it's a quite palpable symbol for what Christ already is in infancy. Mm-hmm. The moment he's brought into the world, it's like, and I kind of thought of it in the sense of you have the, the gold, which is sort of everybody knows that gold is valuable. So yes. there's this sort of glorification that you see with gold. But then frankincense as an incense that is the offering, right? Uh, Christ's life is that gold that will become an offering Mm. that will then, what is myrrh? It's used in embalming, right? Like it's used in death and burial and the fragrance of his death. And so in a way you're seeing with the wise men already this symbolic precursor, right? Uh, To the whole life of Jesus, his mission to the cross and what it accomplishes. So I like... Yes, when we're talking about atonement, the reconciliation of God and humanity that happens with Jesus' death, his atoning death, uh, you're seeing it already. It's prefigured not only in the beginning of the New Testament, but really throughout the entire Bible, right? That right. It's, it's, the atonement covers the grand narrative of Israel mm. all the way, right? Okay, so we're, yeah. it's actually, it's all connected. And so, so this is why sometimes I think that atonement theory, the way that it's used, can be, in, in my opinion, a little problematic because theory uh, is a word that we typically associate with sort of like scientific understandings of things. And that is what we're trying to do. I want to be clear yes. in one sense. I mean, like kind of the question we're asking is why did Jesus have to die in order for there to be this reconciliation? Yes. And this what, is the thing we get of... tripped up on. Yeah, in what way does that death bring about reconciliation and atonement? Exactly. Yes. And to to narrowly place that within the confines of a quote-unquote theory, I think can be a little problematic. So we have to kind of, I think, place theory in its own context. When we, when we talk about theory in a theological way, we are not, we in a sense, we're using... Um, uh, uh, metaphor to kind of say th- this is a helpful way of thinking about the mm. actual like mechanisms of what's going on. Why does Jesus's death affect the salvation of all human right. beings? Right. Um, so you're saying there's lots of theories of atonement about yes. what Jesus's death meant. Wh- which is the right one? <laughs> exactly. Right. So and this is where I which would say correct. I I would say I would say none of them can be legitimately just correct in and of themselves. And mm. typically what ends up happening, actually, when you talk about atonement theories, most most people, I would say, would blend most of them together and see them as almost a kaleidoscopic view of all of these theories kind of help give some attention. However, there are a few theories that I think you will see, certainly in like reformed circles, there is, for instance, penal substitutionary atonement. Oh, it's a long phrase. We're going to have to unpack that. But going to the idea of there's penal substitution. So punishment, Jesus is substituting his life for ours because we are guilty of sin. Sin brings death. And that 
death then is God's is is Jesus's atoning death for our sins. Now, I feel like as you're saying that you should be pounding a pulpit. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, this is what I'm trying to say is that that one view, that one theory is I would say in some reform circles the view. And if you do not hold to that, you don't know the gospel. Yes. And I'm not actually going to argue that. I don't think that I'm not Mr. No to penal substitutionary atonement. The problem is penal substitutionary atonement has also been, you know, let's say, translated in a certain way that there are some who want to get rid of it completely yes. because they see it as violent. I mean, one of the main reasons why that view of the atonement, that view of, okay, and, and if, just make sure I'm breaking it down enough for everybody. We have sinned. All have sinned in Adam, okay? We therefore have created that gap between us and God, yep. okay? There's nothing we can do to make up for that, okay? So God sends Jesus to die in our place to suffer the sins of humanity yeah. so that we may be brought back into proper relation. Yeah. Now, there's... Almost everything correct about that. The problem is that sometimes this can get translated into saying God was really angry and so somebody needed to pay for it and he killed his son as a result. Now you yeah. can see where the language, it's not even, it's almost semantic, but you're yes. going, there's something wrong about that narrative suddenly That's right. where we end up with an image where God is, God is wrathful. Um, he's angry with us because we've sinned, and so I gotta have my whipping that's boy, right? right? Somebody's gotta pay. Yeah. That's a monstrosity, you know. Of you know, that's a that's a monstrous that's view. A, that's an evil caricature, right? Of what and I the and to the to means. the people, you know, to the proponents of penal substitutionary atonement, uh, who who truly I think are trying to uphold that. I I I know none of them would say that's what they're trying to convey, but. Oftentimes, it seems like that's the message that gets brought out. So there's a couple of other theories that have competed with it, for instance. Uh, Christus Victor would be the other one, Christ the Victor. Um, this theory, which was, which was given, um, it, it really, I would say all of these theories in some sense go back to early church reflections on this. Yes. And that's part of the and, argument. And they're biblical. And they're biblical. For sure. However, people will argue things like penal substitutionary atonement really comes into play only after Calvin. Okay. Uh, Gustav Allen in the... In the well, early, 19, early 20th century? Mid-20th century, mid -20th yeah, century. Wrote, uh, wrote the book Christus Victor, which kind of reinterpreted Christus Victor as, a, as a, another interpretation of this. That view then emphasizes just something different, okay? It's not necessarily opposed. I just want to say that. They're not necessarily in conflict with each other. But this is now uh, saying that the reconciliation between God and humanity happens as this rescue mission of Jesus coming and defeating the powers of sin and death. He is victorious over those powers that we have been held in bondage to. Yes. So you can see similar where these to are an not... an Exodus sort of imagery uh, to, uh, Totally similar to an that's Exodus, right. right? I mean, and as a matter of fact, that, that's what gives Christus Victor such prominence. And it's probably where, like, for, for me, that is maybe the interpretation I lean more toward in terms of emphasis, in terms of my own evangelizing of, like, what's really going on here? Because the idea that, that this is Christ rescuing us from the bondage we've put ourselves in um, is, is, you know, it's more a story of God's defeat of sin and death rather than 
purely a transactional payment that somebody had to make up for. Yes. And that God just couldn't forgive without, you know. Now, like I said, that's not necessarily what penal substitution is having to talk about. And this goes into some of the other theories that we could maybe go into. One of my favorites is called the fishhook theory of atonement. This is often neglected. I don't know a lot of people talk about this one anymore. It was brought up by Gregory of Nyssa, who was an early church father. Um, I think I know what you're talking about. You might have heard this one before. Yeah, I don't know if I've heard it called the fishhook theory. So literally, fishhook, <laughs> when you think of a fishhook, this is literally the idea that God deceives the devil. Yes. So that So we've sinned, okay? We've all fallen into sin. Uh, the only thing that can make up for that sin is for human human nature to be, you know, brought out of that sinful state. So Jesus becomes, in the incarnation, fully human and dies as a human being. And death swallows up his humanity like a fish, thinking that it has victory over it, right? It takes the bait, so to speak. But because Jesus is fully God and fully man, death has no power over his life. Mm. So in trying to take him in death, God destroys death. Yes. <laughs> now you can see where that is like, it's, it's almost too mechanistic to us in the sense that we don't want to think of it literally. But in terms of its actual, you know, its quality as a, as a story to help us understand what's going on, it can be actually quite effective. It mirrors the story of Jonah, for instance, and mm. the swallowing of the whale. And, uh, and, and it, so it gives this idea, though, that how did God defeat the sin and death in the world? Well, he entered into it fully and filled it with love, essentially, yes. right? I mean, like that it's like, how does he defeat death? Well, he enters into it as perfect love, yeah. as perfected, sinless humanity. Death, you can't... It's like, I'm going to give a really bad analogy here, but it's like okay. in Aladdin. Yes. <laughs> At the very end when Jafar is like, he becomes the genie and then he doesn't realize that it's like, hey, dude, that means you're now a genie. You're now stuck, right? Yes. Like, it's like death entered into a territory that it couldn't... It, it cashed a void check. Yes. You know what I mean? And... This was actually a, a popular interpretation of, of the reconciliation that happens between God and humanity in the early church. I think I've heard some pushback on that in the idea that it's the, the, uh, the, the basic idea of that theory is that God is tricky. Right? Yeah, right, right. That, that seems to go against the character of God in some people's views that God would trick Satan. That or he would deceive whatever. anybody, even if it yes. was the devil. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's where you can kind of take that language with a grain of salt and go, you know, in the same way that we have to take, you know, uh, another theory that we've already sort of touched on, actually, it's just been reinterpreted as ransom theory. Mm. So Paul talks about Jesus's life as a ransom for many. Yes. Okay. So well, Jesus himself said that. So too. the idea, yeah, yeah. So the idea of ransom is, uh, is, uh, is, is there. Okay, we have to deal with it. It's not like, you know, so the idea of a ransom transactional, the, the thing is, is how far do you want to push these analogies in yes. terms of, right, where are they helpful and when do they? And I think that's why it's helpful to, to have a grasp on many of them. Because mm -hmm. if you take one too far, it's, it's right. kind of twisted out of shape. Well, that's exactly where but I would say with... them all in balance with each other, you then have it can a help. rich, nuanced understanding. I, I think of, that's where I would kind of, to the discussion on penal substitutionary atonement where it's it's bad version is people saying god was angry needed a whipping boy in order to, okay but 
in a correct understanding, it's still like the motive of there is punishment happening. The question is, where is it being bore out? I mean, Paul, Paul says, uh, uh, I don't want to actually quote the, the verse because I'll probably get it wrong, but Paul says, he became, Christ became sin who knew no sin. 2 he, Corinthians 5. 5.21, right? 5.21? Okay. 2 Corinthians, that's where I was. Second, I was like, did I say 2 Corinthians? Yeah, I did say I think so. 5.21, okay. though. He, he became sin who knew no sin. So, is God wrathful at sin? Of course. Is, is wrath being poured out? Of course. But it's being poured out on sin. Exactly. And I mean, Not and, Jesus. and Christ has become sin. Now, here's here's why this is why I like kind of we've kind of given a mishmash of everything here. But here's the thing that I think is really important to get out of this. In the early church, one of the you had the first ecumenical councils. They came together and they were all talking about the, the nature and deity of Christ. And they were trying to figure this stuff out. And one of the things they came to was this idea that can be said like this: that which is not assumed is not redeemed. So in talking about the idea of Christ as fully God and fully man, part of the understanding of our reconciliation, how does how is Christ's death vicarious for me? Like how does it how how is it vicarious? How how am I affected by him doing it? Right? Christ becomes fully human as in he embodies human nature. Yes. Okay? He is the second Adam. Yes. And so this idea of he has to be fully man and fully God. Not like 50% of both. He's got to be 100% both. And that's, what we, that's the mystery of the hypostatic union that's called in theology, right? Um, he has to be fully both because in order to save us from sin, he has to take everything that is sinful. Right. And Paul is saying literally become it yep. and have, have it defeated by his divinity, right? Yeah. By his perfect goodness and love. Whereas Irenaeus and Athanasius and some other church fathers whose names eluding me, uh, Christ became what we are so that we could become what he is. Yes, right. That's another... Right? He assumes... So that which is not assumed saying, is right. not redeemed. If Christ does not become fully human, then it doesn't matter that it wouldn't affect us, That's right. basically. And now this is where, and I think this is also important, where in the church tradition... This affects the understanding of things like baptism, for instance. How is Christ's death, how, how does the reconciliation that happens between humanity and God in Christ's death, how do I participate in that? How am I brought into that? And this is where the idea of like, you confess it with your lips, you die in baptism, what you are doing is dying to sin as Christ died and entering into new life. So, one of the things that we talk about when we talk about this reconciliation is like, well, and I've heard this question, especially from young people, where if Christ died on the cross, why do I still have to die? Why am I still facing death? And it's sort of a misunderstanding. It's going, no, what, what Christ has done is made your death now efficacious for salvation. You yes. see, it's actually now through your death, through participating in the death of Christ, because it's been yes. taken, sorry, because the death of uh, the death itself has been taken into God. That's right. You you actually enter into life through death. Mm. That's a that's the radical gospel right there. I mean, that's the incredible like. He's, no, he's defeated death. How he entered into it fully. He became sin that knew no sin. Um, if we put it in those terms, I think we can start to understand where this is not this contemporary picture that gets painted of 
simply wrathful deity wanting his pound of flesh. This is rescue mission. You were dead in your sin. So Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God himself, the judge judged in our place is how Karl Barth put it. Mm. The judge gets off the, the bench and enters into the very punishment, okay? Now, you can see where that's where that language is is difficult for some people to take, especially today. They don't like the idea that, like, I deserve punishment for, okay? But yes. that's, it's absolutely a part of, a part of what we have to, you know, understand in the reconciling death of, of Jesus is that sin did need to be dealt with. There needed to be justice, but it's all done on the side of God, mm-hmm. right? And, and what's funny is, this is the last thing I want to say just about this, is that Calvin, John Calvin, is often painted in a very negative light when people bash penal substitutionary atonement, okay? And probably not for no reason at all, yeah. uh, okay? <laughs> he, had some, he had some views we could probably talk about, all right? Double predestination, the idea that God predestines people for heaven and for hell, okay? Yes. But that can be reinterpreted, and also Calvin mentioned it once in the entire institutes. But, um, but I just want to say this, that even Calvin... Uh, notes this very important point that we have to remember when we're talking about atonement. And that is, because God is immutable and unchangeable, there is no, God isn't one way before the death of Jesus and then another way after. Mm. In other words, God doesn't love you because Jesus died. Jesus died because God loves you. And that right there is the kind of sticking, to me, that's one of the main theological points that gets misheard or misrepresented when we start talking about these atonement theories or ways of yes. understanding it. Before the cross, God is, is angry, wrathful, cruel, even. Right. Afterwards, he's like all yeah, he's placated. sunshine and roses. He's, he's placated. He went, oh, okay. All right, you guys well, can come in now. You guys come in now, exactly. Yeah. And if we have that image of God, we have a completely skewed and false understanding of what it means that God is the unchangeable, infinite, immutable good, okay? He is, God is love. This is that rescue mission. The, the last thing I wanted to now talk about is that there's also a, another set of theory that is moral atonement theory. I was hoping you would get to that one. That's yes. one of my favorites. Probably. And this is, it's, it's also one of mine, but it needs to be seen. I, I think for most people, it's actually their least favorite. And the reason it's their least favorite is because moral atonement theory is really looking at Jesus' death on the cross as a moral example for human beings. So this was made famous by a theologian named Peter Abelard in the 12th century. And uh, he was a philosopher, a French philosopher and theologian, but really more a philosopher in the, in the strict sense of the word. But he was interested in, in how this kind of affects our ethics and things like that. Now, the problem with this is that if you just isolate the theory, then Jesus' death is not really something that God is doing for humanity. It's something that like humanity just needs to learn from, and it's all very nice, and it's a symbol, but it isn't this sort of cosmic reality of something yes. that actually occurred. It doesn't have a metaphysical apo- component to it right. the way the other ones do. And so that's where I think what Abelard had kind of started and what's then been taken by others and I think expanded on is really important and really useful, but it needs to be coupled with with these sort of more theologically lofty ones, okay? So, uh, but I will say, to your point, because you said this is one of your favorite ones. Yes. Um, 
this one perhaps is the one that most radically shifted my understanding of the atonement as well. But it didn't come through Abelard for me. It came through a writer named René Girard. Mm. And I say this also with a grain of salt. Um, René Girard is a Catholic, was, he, he died, I think, in 2016. He was a Catholic um, social anthropologist and literary critic. I've spent a lot of time studying him. He is, he is often a little taboo in some circles. And he's taboo for precisely one of the reasons I've already mentioned, is that he talks a lot in theories, okay? He's famous for developing what's called the mimetic theory of desire. And mimetic theory, I, I won't go into all of it right now, but it's all about imitation and the way human beings interact. But it's a theory, and that's the point, is that when he applies it to biblical understanding, some people are wary of the fact that it's way too theorized, and that God, the whole gospel narrative, can't be summarized in just a simple theory. And so we have to be careful with it. I agree with the criticism. However, what Gerard does that's very helpful from my standpoint is he comes at this problem from an anthropological standpoint. So it's, it's actually now about what is affected in humanity. And, and on this point, you know, I think this is important that, that, yeah, it's true, you can't always fit theology, you can't fit God into a theory, but human beings, I, we, we can't be fit into theory either, but we are big on theory. We, we're patterned behavioral people. We fall into rhythms all the time. And part of what Gerard was trying to show is that these mechanistic kind of ways of living that we fall into are, are exploded by the reconciliation between God and humanity. So just to explain this a little bit, what he said was that human beings uh, engage in, in violent action with each other because they desire the same things. This is a very simple way of putting it, okay? But you and I, cultures and tribes, we desire similar things. And as a result of that, we get into collision with each other. Yeah. And in Sometimes it's not just similar things, it's the same thing. It's the same thing, you know, yeah. I, it's I unrepeatable want, things. It's, I want that slice of pizza you have. There's one left. <laughs> you can see mimetic theory at work if you ever just watch two toddlers play with one toy. <laughs> yes. Okay? And this is what he's trying to say. Is he says, actually, the entire Bible is are, are, it's all stories of sibling rivalry. It's mm-hmm. Cain and Abel. It's Jacob and Esau, right? It's Joseph and his brothers, okay? That's right. There's, there's always infighting with the brothers and this this outletting okay and so what we do is we create scapegoats and we make a scapegoat in order to pour our wrath on it and then it's kind of goes with the old proverb of the enemy of my enemy is my friend we actually come together and we commune over the collective scapegoating of somebody that's what René Girard's theory is all about that's a very simple I'm not going into the depths of it but that's the basis of it he then applies this to atonement and what you see there is Jesus is unwilling to participate in the violence of humanity. So he allows himself to become the scapegoat for an angry culture. Now, the reason why this shaped me so much, and like I said, I haven't gone very deep into the philosophy, but the reason why this was so huge for me was because it showed that the violence that God, that Jesus suffers on the cross is our violence. And it is not God's violence being thrown into Jesus. God is not the God of violence, okay? So even when we have conversations about punishment, right, where penal substitutionary atonement, often the Girardians will be pitted against the penal substitutionary guys, okay? Because they don't like, it can't be that transactional thing. It's this, it's more of a moral atonement, but it's, okay, it's, it's loaded with these other 
ideas that that God is of nonviolent persuasion. Okay. Yeah. Now that's hugely important, but it shifts at least the focus to go. Even if we're talking about wrath and where that can be poured out on sin, Jesus dies at the hands of human beings. He doesn't. He gives himself over to the death of human beings in our violent ways. Yes. When I recognized that, I think I rethought everything about about what I had been kind of told growing up about Christianity and how God pay. You know how God has made us right with Him. Um, I don't know what you do with that. I know that's probably yeah. a lot. No, that's and we really good. maybe go into it another time. But I mean that that really uh, that's an example of where a, a sort of moral atonement theory really was pivotal in shaping. I guess me. the one thing I would add uh, for for what you're saying there, because a lot of what you just mentioned with some of these um, theories, there's pushback about how it presents God. Uh, there's pushback from others about. Uh, us not liking the idea of us being of human beings being sinful, being under punishment, deserving punishment, deserving whatever, and and I think that while every any any pushback, any criticism, I think deserves to be heard. I'm not trying to say that, but I think that one thing we need to recognize is that I think our culture, speaking from like again, I'm the pastor of recovery here, speaking from sort of a 12 step celebrate recovery perspective. Uh, there's an idea in, in Celebrate Recovery called denial mm-hmm. that um, we are we are often are the worst people to understand ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, we might be hurting ourselves and hurting other people in many ways, and yet often we don't see it. You know that it's that's that insanity uh, that we talk about as well, doing the same thing again and again, expecting different results. And what we need to do is we need to come out of our denial recognize the truth of things. And I think that we live in a culture that is in denial when it comes to this aspect of ourselves. We want to take God off the throne and put ourselves up there. Yeah. And that human beings are essentially good people and that human beings are wonderful. And we want to have this this optimism, which is ultimately sounds good, but is ultimately destructive, I think, because we need to recognize the good, the bad, and the good. We can't, everything in life is not sunshine and roses. We can't, we have to look at, I mean, just this past year, you know, how people are responding to the pandemic, anti-vaxxers on the one hand, and mm-hmm. people who are super ready to let the, the government become a police state, you know, bashing people if they're not, uh, you know, vaccin- vaccinated. I mean, the conflict there, look at the conflict about the Black Lives Matter uh, movement and how many conservative people, Christian or otherwise, um, have sort of reacted against Black Lives Matter to say, oh, this is all, this isn't Christian, this isn't good, this isn't whatever. While, yeah, so we we can tend to not see this, or at least perhaps in a Girardian way, we see only the bad in the other and not in ourselves. Yes. And I think I think you've really these, hit on it. For yeah, the- all of these issues of atonement at some point mean I need a reconciliation and we're forgetting that sometimes mm-hmm. we want to underplay that because I think we're in denial. I think you've, I think you've really hit on a great place to end here because this brings it full circle. Mm. Um, this is exactly where one of the, one of the things that again, that came out of my Girardian studies, one of the things Girard said has always stayed with me is to, uh, to wreck to be a Christian 
is to recognize that I am the crucifier of Christ. Mm. It's an incredibly difficult thing. For I think you know we might recoil from that at first. Yes. But it is this notion that until I have the humility to see that yet while I was his enemy, Christ died for me. Mm. Um, I can't reconcile with anybody else. Yes. Because I think of them as the other. Yeah. I think of them as as sort of competing with me for space or in this desire, right? The reconciliation of God, both in that high theological sense and even in the moral exemplar sense, is showing Jesus just gives himself fully to the other, allows himself, even death on a cross, to to move into that phase at our hands. And if we don't recognize that sort of line within us, how can we ever reconcile with our brothers and sisters of any other stripe, right? Absolutely. Um, and, and so again, one of the things that kind of pours out of this that I just really like from Girard is that while there is a sort of wrath that's poured out on sin, uh, God ends up becoming this God of nonviolence in this understanding, where we end up recognizing that for us to enter into violence is cyclical and it perpetuates itself. Yes. And the atonement of the cross, the atonement of Christ, the reconciliation of God and his creation is this act of completely laying down himself in order to, to not participate in that violent act and, and bring rightness with God. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of The Deep Dive. If you enjoyed this conversation and want to stay engaged with what we're doing, you can hit the like and subscribe button on YouTube, or you can subscribe or follow wherever you download your podcasts. When you like and subscribe, you support the ministry here at Deepwater Church, and we are truly thankful for that. Now, hitting the subscribe button will not earn you your salvation, but it will keep Colin from crying. We'll see you next week on The Deep Dive.